1: Hey, this is DeRay, and welcome to Pod Save the People. On this episode, we have the news with me, Britt, Clinton, and Sam. We also have Kat Calvin of Spread the Vote joining us.
0: People of color, people of low income, young people, and, and um, well, elderly people are the exception in that, I, for a lot of reasons, don't traditionally vote, mostly because the government has, A, made it very difficult and gone out of their way to tell those people that their vote doesn't matter.
2: And
1: Wendy Cop of Teach
2: for All joining us. I've come to just see so deeply how important it is that the people who've experienced the inequities we're working to address are guiding and leading the work. Um, and, you know, I think this whole approach is rooted in the idea that we need, we need a diverse and inclusive group of people leading, you know, from inside and outside of education, working together to affect the changes necessary to ensure all kids fulfill their potential.
1: A jam-packed episode you know, when people think about nonviolence, they often think that that means uh, that we are just quiet, that you just let things happen to you. Now, remember that nonviolence doesn't mean that we don't challenge and confront systems and structures. It means that we choose a different way to go about it. You can be confrontational in a host of ways. You should challenge systems and structures in a host of ways. That is not at odds with any commitment you might have to being nonviolent. So when I think about this week, it's about how are you challenging systems of oppression? How are you confronting thoughts and ideas that do real damage in people's lives? Remember, not at odds with your commitment to nonviolence. Let's go. And now the news is me, Brittany Packnett, former member of the Ferguson Commission, appointed by President Obama to the task force in 21st century policing and now a leader in education Clint Smith III, our resident academic, and Samuel Sinyangwe, our resident data
3: scientist.
4: It's the news. This is Brittany Packnett, at Miss Packetti, on all social media.
3: And this is Sam Sinyangwe, at Sam Sway on Twitter. What's going on, y'all? This is Clint Smith, at Clint Smith
1: III. Hi, hi, hi. And this is Dre at Dre D-R-E-Y, on Twitter.
4: So what's everyone been enjoying on TV lately? I don't know about you all, but TV is part of my self-care, so I do not deny, nor am I ashamed of enjoying it.
5: Yeah, I've been trying to get my binging in. Um, and I've really been into the second season of Stranger Things. Uh, and it's just, I, I had very high mm. expectations after season one. Um, and and season two, they just really been killing it. I think the, I also am out, out here like, you know, there'll be a a noise, like my, my microwave will creak. And then I'll think it's the Demogorgon. Uh, shout out to everybody who knows that <laughs> reference because you out here watching the show um or you played dungeons and dragons growing up but uh (laughs) the demogorgon is like a very intense scary monster who plays a central role in stranger things and uh yeah this season was really amazing and sometimes when i watch them i'm just like i can't believe that these kids are like such good actors it's really remarkable to me how talented young people are it's unbelievable
4: they're so good
5: Millie Bobby Brown, like... She's
1: unreal.
4: Didn't Kayla McLaughlin just win a... Forgive me if I'm saying his last name wrong. Didn't he just win a, an NAACP image award for his role in Stranger Things? Oh, yeah. I think he did. I do not watch Stranger Things, but I loved the new edition story, which he starred in. And he was just phenomenal there. So I, if if the acting of all of the young people on there is up to that level, then I'm sure it's phenomenal. Yeah, he's
1: mad talented. My favorite part of that is... um, What's her name? Who's the mom...
4: You're talking about Winona Ryder? Yeah.
1: She's great. And like when she put those Christmas lights up to like to you know, do the thing, I don't want to give it away. But the Christmas lights were amazing. Don't I'm give too much away. That. I know. Great, great show.
4: Spoiler, great show. spoiler. What about
1: you, Sam
3: and uh, Brittany? Grownish.
4: Yes, Sam. Yes, yes. Grownish all day.
3: Incredible. It's only been like three episodes, right?
4: It has only been three episodes, but it pulled me in three or four, I think because I think the premiere was two episodes, but it pulled me in right away because it does not shy away from how college really is, right? Like, it is not a cookie-cutter sitcom. Um, all of the young people on that show are phenomenal actors as well. Chloe and Howie are hilarious. Yara Shahidi is, of course, brilliant. I have said it before, and I will say it again, Yara Shahidi is my president. I have decided I'm going to go forth in that direction. <laughs> um, but it's it's really great, and it's, it's a to- totally diverse cast. It's really funny. It's great.
5: Isn't she starting school this year? Like, how is
3: she about to... How is she going to be in school? Has she started? That's a great question. Has she started or she starts next year? <laughs>
4: she's a boss.
3: But I imagine that she will be starting soon if she hasn't started yet. And the show presumably goes on. No, right?
1: she's taking a gap year.
3: Oh, okay. But the show just got picked up for a second season.
5: So I don't know what she's about. You know, class on Monday, film on Tuesday kind of thing.
3: Fly out after your 830. And it's going to be tough because in the show, like, she's supposed to be in California, and like Southern California, and if she's at Harvard, either she's just going to have to fly to California or somewhere south to make it look like California. She's have to live that red eye life. Or be in the snow. Like, I don't know how to, yeah.
4: And as if that's not enough, she also has helped direct some of the episodes as well. So like, clearly a lot on her plate, but we should, we should trust black women. We should trust women of color. She's
5: what, 19? I
4: think y'all will be, y'all will be just fine. This is why she's my president.
5: Colin Kaepernick's Afro is my president, but that works too. And Britt, you were at the, uh, at the Women's March, weren't you?
4: I was. I was at the Women's March in the Bay Area. Shout out to all the incredible organizers and the diverse speakers there. Um, I was just really, it was a real moment of pride for me. It was also a little scary because it was 100,000 people that I was speaking in front of. Um, but it was a real honor. And um, it was a pleasure to be able to speak about issues of intersectionality um, and the its importance in the feminist movement and women's movements in front of an audience that not only was not afraid of it, but embraced it. Uh, and the, the slate of speakers was reflective of just how intersectional the march was. I think we've actually made some real strides in just a year of women with privilege really listening to, respecting the perspective and opinions and leadership of marginalized women. So I'm hopeful that we'll continue in that path. But it was a really beautiful day. Incredible energy. Shout out to all the friends of the pod that I met uh, out in San Francisco. It was a really lovely day.
3: I heard some figures that it was it was like 2.5 million people in total nationwide who came out for uh, the march.
4: Yeah. And that was just so on the 20th, there were marches all across the country in various cities. And then on the 21st, kind of the central march happened in Las Vegas, Nevada, because Nevada is, of course, a critical state uh, for the 2018 election. So um, all across the country, we were discussing the importance of an intersectional movement as we move toward these all important midterm elections, taking our power to the polls. Uh, So speaking of the importance of intersectionality, even though the shutdown has ended after three days, I think it's really important for us to take a look at what shutdowns can mean to various communities. Uh, And especially given the fact that this uh, deal was only created for three weeks, uh, we could actually be right back in the same position in just a short period of time. Thankfully, we have been centering this conversation both on what's been happening in Congress and the shutdown on how it can affect immigrant communities and undocumented communities, uh, low-income communities. But we often forget to discuss the impact on Native communities, and they are particularly at risk here, given just how much treaty obligations require the federal government to fund and service Native communities on a daily basis. So there are things that many of us take for granted um, that are being handled at the state and local level for us. And because of the colonization of this land, Indigenous people are far more subject to the whims of the federal government than are the rest of us. So I wanna thank the National Indian Education Association and my friend, Robert Cook, who I work with every day, who is a champion for Indigenous communities, um, for the information that they shared just about how the shutdown can impact Native communities. So when we're thinking about schools in particular, you have to think about Title I, which is money that goes to low-income schools, Title VI, which is impact aid, and Title Seven, which is a set-aside, especially for the education of Indigenous students. So that's American Indian, Native Hawaiian, and Native Alaskan students. You also have to think about Bureau of Indian Education Schools, which are actually run by the Department of Interior. So already we've got this very complicated thing happening um, to educate students in Native communities um, happening across two different departments. If the shutdown lasts for more than a week, BIE schools, which are run by the Department of Interior, will face challenges in continuing their administrative functions. And we also have to think about the broader tribal support that happens in these communities every day, transportation, et cetera, that will affect children's ability to get to and learn in school. Um, Also, if the shutdown lasts more than a week, it could severely affect impact aid and the federal funding that flows directly to these schools. Uh, In 2013, the last time we had a government shutdown, impact aid schools, uh, according to the NIEA, were actually forced to take out loans from local banks to stay open. And in some cases, it took impact aid schools years to recover from having to pay back these loans Schools that also receive funding from Title VI programs could be placed at risk, and the grant applications that they have to fill out to receive said funding could be delayed. So even the things that are funded uh, ahead of time could be delayed for future years by any shutdown that lasts for more than a week. Uh, when I was at the Women's March on in the Bay on Saturday, uh, it was our Indigenous communities that actually opened the march, both with a prayer and with a call out to all of us to stand by and with our Indigenous population populations. Uh, And so I wanted to bring this up because it's, you know, it's easy to have conversations about the shutdown and have lots of back and forth about which which party it was and all the things that Trump did to cause this. But while people are having arguments, people are really at risk of real suffering, especially the people who often don't get heard.
5: So I'm heartened to hear what you said about the uh, recognition and space that was created for the folks at the uh, Women's March in the Bay, specifically the indigenous community, um, and, you know, I had a an event in Toronto not too long ago, uh, and something that I found really moving, um, and that's something that I'm coming to recognize takes place in, in a lot of uh, different parts of Canada specifically, is that there is, when, before any event or before any speaking engagement or before any ceremony, uh, I, I can't speak to all the time, but it seems like oftentimes, uh, in my experience, in the time I've spent in Canada, uh, that there is typically an acknowledgement of the space and of the land upon which the event is taking place. Um, and I remember the first time that I uh, encountered that a few years ago, I found that really humbling and I found that really moving. And I think it's something that I've tried to be more thoughtful about and trying to be more purposeful in in the places that I go and the spaces that I'm engaging in. Uh, because, and, and it's something for all of us to consider, you know, an exercise that might be uh, interesting for folks is to like look up where you live and look up uh which indigenous community were the people who were living on this land obviously before it was colonized and uh and that's something that's really uh just really interesting to me and, and something that i'm gonna try and be better about in in terms of the different places that i go uh, and as a side note i think it's interesting i just uh realized that the you know we're obviously we're having a lot of conversations about the idea of citizenship now, uh, and and I didn't realize that uh, the Indian Citizenship Act of 1924 was when Native Americans were officially granted U.S. citizenship, which is just like really wild. You know what I mean? Like the idea that <laughs> that uh, Indigenous Americans they have to earn citizenship you know for I'm the saying, like, land that was already there. Not, <laughs> like for, these people have been here for hundreds and thousands of years, and the U.S. Government decided that they could officially be citizens in 1924. I mean, I I just I saw that and I had to kind of like take a step back because I thought it was it was so absurd. Uh, But it is reflective of um, the the fundamental incoherence of the way that we think about citizenship in this country and like who
3: is deserving or undeserving of that. And in thinking about the ways in which that colonization continues to manifest today, you know whether it is uh, what we saw uh, recently in Standing Rock, uh, whether it is looking at you know the relationship of the federal government still uh, to Indigenous groups, and and how everything is it seems to be dependent on the whims of people who either aren't thinking about Indigenous communities, aren't interacting with Indigenous communities, or actively. Uh, harbor hostility towards Indigenous communities, especially in this administration, and 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 that's just unacceptable. And, and and I'm interested in thinking about like what are some ways to help dismantle some of those uh, relationships and those structures that uh, continue to to promulgate this uh, moving forward. Like, are there, uh, in addition to making sure that all the treaty obligations are honored, like what uh, what measures and new legislation needs to be passed uh, to expand upon and strengthen? Uh, indigenous communities and and prevent this type of colonization from continuing uh, moving forward.
1: Yeah, I don't, you know, I, I do think that this reminds me that like co- coalitions that we will only win by building coalitions and being really clear about the fact that all of our uh, that the way that we're oppressed is is linked and which does it mean that that too often we think about only our situations and, and don't know enough to, to think about how other people are impacted. So Brittany, I appreciate you bringing it here to, to push us to think deeper about the way that the shutdown impacts other communities that I don't have as close a proximity to uh, and still require our attention and our devotion and our uh, efforts and energy.
4: Yeah, I'll just close by saying uh, I closed out my speech at the Women's March in the Bay Area uh Pushing people to do exactly what you just said, DeRay. Pushing people to remember that as we continue forward in this movement, and especially as we go to the ballot box in November, uh, to remember not just your lot, but the lot of others it is easy to approach the tool of voting and the tool of activism more broadly in a way that centers yourself and your people alone, but we're not going to get free unless we all get free together. Uh, and so, I, you know, I hope to remind people that when you get to that ballot box, you have the opportunity to either shut the door closed For more freedom and more justice for more people, or you can open up that door by which we can walk through and continue this work. Uh, And so if you actually want to know more about issues that are important on the ballot box to Native communities right now, you can go to nativevote.org, also a piece of information that was shared from the NIEA. It's a nonpartisan campaign, but it certainly has a lot of resources so that we can educate ourselves about the platforms and the ways in which the upcoming elections will affect communities besides our own.
3: So my piece of news uh, is an article uh, in the New York Post, which talks about a decision by the New York, New York's police union, the Patrolmen Benevolence Association. Uh, they have decided to reduce the number of, quote, get out of jail free courtesy cards distributed to police officers to give to their family and friends. Uh, so this is something I actually didn't know was happening. You know, I'm in New York City. I didn't know that NYPD officers get, uh, they used to get 30 of these cards. Now they're only getting 20 uh, and they're mad about this, but the cards essentially uh, are for them to gift to family and friends to help them, uh, Avoid getting a traffic ticket if they get pulled over uh, and to avoid penalties for other minor offenses as well and it doesn 't specify what those are uh, i 'd be interested in learning more if that includes like jumping a turnstile or all these other sort of low level broken windows uh, type offenses that we 've talked about in the past and that disproportionately impact communities of color um, but this is fascinating because you know I, I tweeted about this earlier. And people, not only in New York City, but in other cities as well, were saying that this was the case in their police department, uh, that it, there was somebody from Georgia, there were people from New Jersey, uh, really so many different places where apparently police officers get uh, these cards or uh, particular cards or badges or other items that they can use uh, to give to people uh, to help them get off the hook and not be uh, stopped, to not be ticketed, to not be arrested in some cases, and um, and I just didn't know this was going on. And so I'm curious to to learn more about this. Um, but, you know, this is just another layer of uh, creating a different level of accountability when you are a family or friend of a police officer uh, for doing the same, you know, types of, you know, minor violations as somebody who does not have that luxury or that privilege of having access to those cards, uh, who would then have an entirely different experience with a police officer.
4: You know, I always knew that if you knew a police officer, if you knew the right police officer, you could make a phone call and usually something would go away. Or if you're brought in and you're the family member of a police officer, that chances are somebody will give a heads up to said police officer that is your friend or relative um, and either help get you off the hook or certainly lessen the punishment that you're going to have to deal with. But to actually know that there were physical cards that were given out to people. Like, this is Monopoly. (laughs) Who were related to... It literally... It's literally a get-out-of-jail-free card, right? Like, and you probably still get to pass go and collect $200. I am... I'm very sure that folks are angry about the cutback, not just because they're being cut back, but also because it exposed that these cards existed. Uh, One of... Sam, from the article you sent, one of... The quotes comes from a retired police officer who said, all the cops I spoke to were very disappointed. They couldn't hand them out as Christmas gifts. I wish the rest of us could hand out freedom like Christmas gifts. We are fighting for our lives, for our existence, for the acknowledgement of our humanity every single day in systems that do not recognize them and in systems in which no one is handing us a get-out-of-jail-free card. I am appalled at the fact that this ever existed. I'm certainly glad to see them being cut back, but they should be cut back to zero because if no one is above the law, then no one's above the law.
5: Yeah, only thing I'll say about this is that beyond how utterly shameful and ridiculous it is, is is that you got folks in this country who are being deported every single day for low-level drug offenses, for traffic tickets, for for things that, that these police officers can hand out to their family members for Christmas. And you got people who've been in this country for years being separated from their children and their families for the same thing. I mean, it, it infuriating doesn't even like begin to capture what, how that makes me feel, especially in this moment, especially when, uh, people's safety and sense of dignity is so precarious. Uh, but I mean, it's it's utterly absurd that such a phenomenon exists, and and it shouldn't be thirty. It shouldn't be twenty. As Britt said, like that sh- this shouldn't this shouldn't exist at all.
1: And uh, you know what's what's also fascinating too is that this is like hiding in plain sight. These aren't secret cards. This is not tucked away in like the back corner. They're not printing these off in like somebody's basement. These are like approved, part of the system, part of the structure. And we talk about that there are two different justice systems. There's one for the police and one for everybody else. This is a great example of how that happened. And what we've maintained from day one is that we just want it to be fair. And if private citizens don't get to benefit from things like this, then then the police don't. And, like, what does it mean? Like, if the rules are the rules, then the rules are the rules. And, again, like, the, the, the takeaway for me from this is that, like, this was not, this isn't hidden somewhere. This is, like, in plain sight. And, like, they've been able to get away with it until you know somebody wrote a random article about it and it's important that we bring these things to light
5: i'm gonna have people out here making counterfeit get out of jail cards i wouldn't even be mad
1: yeah apparently they're selling these on ebay
5: oh for real i was just joking but like
1: yeah but but not counterfeit they weren't selling counterfeit cards they were selling the real ones
4: they were selling the real ones yeah for the a real markup.
3: ones. okay <laughs> i mean they each get 30 to like 20 or 30 of them that's a lot
1: so this is kind of
5: tied to to what i just brought up but Obviously, we are in the midst of uh, at, at the time of this recording, a government shutdown that is uh, centered completely uh, around uh, the bad faith and and lack of any you know semblance of morality on the behalf of uh, folks in uh, in the GOP in Congress, uh, but but is also you know Democrats taking a stand on uh, DACA and recognizing that this is the Probably the only moment and opportunity for leveraged uh, around this issue, and 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 it's obviously we've been having a broader conversation about immigration in the past few weeks, and and there was an amazing and devastating, heart wrenching article uh, written by Sarah Stillman in the New Yorker uh, last week, and if you hadn't had a chance to read it, uh, I can't recommend it enough. You also there's a new feature for the New Yorker and and a bunch of these other magazines where you can listen to it. Uh, and because, you know, not everybody has time to sit down and read a 10,000 word article. And so now you can listen to it the same way you would with an audiobook and you can listen to it while you do laundry on your commute, what have you. But essentially she's talking about all of the people who are deported uh, from the United States and then are deported back to places that are, um, filled with, with violence, like very profound and, uh, and, and a desperate sense of violence and and talks about the people who are deported from this country sent back to a country of violence and then are killed uh and 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 it hadn't fully occurred to me that this was like i think i knew it it's one of those things that you kind of know uh in the back of your head but to to be presented with the stories of these individuals and these families it raised the stakes even higher than they had been raised um and some of the things that she brings up in this piece are that you know that we have six hundred thousand people backlogged in the immigration court, uh, and sometimes people sit in in detention for longer than a year uh, without necessarily being charged for for anything. And these immigrants necessarily aren't entitled to lawyers. And we found what she found was that children as young as three have been told that they have to represent themselves in immigration court uh, because so many of these people don't have. Uh, attorneys and and there, well, there's been some movement, and we talked about it a few months ago uh, that Vera reported about uh, different cities who have made it mandatory that immigrants have a lawyer in court, which completely changes the trajectory of their uh, their experience in court and their opportunity to get asylum. Uh, but you know, oftentimes people are deported under the pretense of of being criminals, uh, and I put criminals in in air quotes, but. But part of what we have to remember is that the very idea of what is or is not a criminal is largely subjective and is fundamentally shaped by people's politics. So you have some people who have been living in this country for years and for decades, kind of like I said before, who are arrested and deported for minor track violations, when when most of us wouldn't consider that in and of itself like a criminal activity. Uh, but when, And I think that's part of why we have to be careful when people espouse like, oh, well, we are only interested in uh, deporting people who are who are quote unquote criminals, um, we have to remember that like the very idea of what is or is not criminal is is not objective. Um, and it's also worth noting that there's extensive research um, showing that immigrants both documented and undocumented commit crimes. Um, if we were going to present crimes as objective realities, the, the research shows that, documented and undocumented folks commit crimes at lower rates than their native born counterparts, um, which runs counter to obviously a lot of the rhetoric that we're seeing coming from the right about the, the danger of, uh, letting immigrants into this country. Um, and the, you know, Trump's presidential campaign just put out a, what is a horrifically racist ad, um, that, you know, uh, harkens back to the sort of Willie Horton ad, um, back in the 80s i believed when when they essentially used racism as a a fear-mongering tactic um and and my last point about this is that the impact of this is like very real and so uh, you know there's some reporting done last year by new york times and la times that showed that the number of latinos reporting uh rapes in houston has fallen by more than 40 percent uh At the time of the reporting and in Los Angeles at the time of that reporting, uh, reports of domestic violence among Latinos had dropped by 10 percent reports of sexual assault had dropped by 25 percent. Right. And this is happening because women, largely women, not singularly women, but women are often fearful of reporting sexual abuse to the authorities because uh, they are fearful that they themselves will be deported to a place where they might die. Uh, or they're afraid that their partner or their family member or whoever is committing the abuse, they might want them to be held accountable, but they might not want them to be sent abroad to a place where they too might be killed. Right. So I think the phenomenon of immigration is having an impact on like every facet of immigrants' families' lives, whether they're documented or undocumented. And and Sarah's article um, and the research that came alongside of it is, uh, was really illuminating and really humanizing, I think, uh, and just an important reminder of how urgent uh, and important this is.
4: Clint, this is such an important example of how one's multiple intersectional identities can elevate the risk women of color are already more susceptible to domestic and intimate partner violence, to sexual abuse and harassment, given the lack of power that their identities gives them in broader society. When you add the expectation, the fear of police violence, of deportation, um, and of being jailed to all of that, it just doubles up on the risk. So even non-immigrant women of color find themselves afraid of what could happen at the, at the in the hands of police violence uh, and so often underreport these things as well. Then if we take a look at the way police violence can interact with undocumented students in school, if you've got a school resource officer in your school who is responsible for discipline, think about how that's going to affect undocumented children who are worried about being deported, who are worried about being detained and are going to keep what could be happening them to them to themselves Um, so every single day the risk that is being experienced by people doubles up and triples up when you add all of these additional marginalized identities both of being a woman of being a person of color and of being an immigrant.
3: Clint this article you know the stories really uh, were so devastating and and I think in many ways for me Uh, really helped to capture the the fact that dehumanizing systems uh, are often populated by individuals who themselves uh, dehumanize others. Uh, And so, you know, you have this system now that essentially defines an entire group of people as illegal. uh, And, you know, especially under this administration, subject to deportation. Uh, And then in reading these stories, you have people who you know somebody who stopped uh, on a traffic violation uh, and says you know don't call border patrol uh, because i you know if i get deported i'm going to be killed uh, and the officer is just like sorry i'm i'm going to call them anyway right and really had no right
5: like she literally said it
3: right and it just like didn't care right like did not care that she was going to die because of what ostensibly was a like driving between lanes um and that is you know, it's not just about the policy. It is about the individuals who are implementing it too, right? And how uh, it takes both of those really to to end up in a place where we are right now, where uh, not only are the policies dehumanizing people, but the individuals themselves are uh, allowing uh, these policies to be implemented uh, with no discretion and with no Uh, attempt to uh, see the humanity of the person on the other side.
1: There's another fascinating article called Deported to Death and Rewire. And what I didn't know is that the government a year ago announced some arrangements to make uh, deportation a little bit safer. So they stopped deporting people in between 10 p.m. and 5 a.m. uh, to some dangerous cities along the border. Uh, They stopped taking everybody's personal belongings and and wanted to make sure that it wasn't after the bus lines and shelters had closed for the night. But it makes me, it reminds me too that it's not just what happens when people get deported, but it is like Clint started to say about like the holding condition. So in ICE facilities, there's often like not only not a right to counsel, but also not a right to medical treatment, to a host of other just like basic needs that people have. And we think about deported to death, uh, we have to take into consideration like the holding cells are just not or the holding facilities because ICE actually doesn't have enough facilities across the country to hold as many people as they detain. So they're using and renting out a lot of local prisons and jails like those places aren't safe either. And when we think about stopping this problem, it is about structural change and making sure that we simply just deport significantly less people, that we. Uh, allow people to immigrate to the country and, and become citizens like there's a process for that and that we do it quickly and we don't harm people in the process but also that like people deserve access to basic things like water and health care and like not getting beat by guard like all of those things are basic things that people should have access to My news is about uh, high interest loans. So the title is borrow $5,000, repay $42,000. How super high interest loans have boomed in California. We had a whole podcast dedicated to the the racial wealth gap and um, and we talked about how the racial wealth gap in uh, probably 40 years will be uh, the median wealth for black people will be zero. But what this article does is it talks about these high interest loans and that there used to be uh, caps on loans for a long time in the state of California and it's not anymore. So state lawmakers in 1985 removed an interest rate cap on loans between $2,500 and $5,000. And now more than half of all loans in that range carry triple digit interest rates. So what's happening is people with pretty poor credit who need money, they're taking out loans because they need the money in that moment, you know, before there was any progress in healthcare, um, The number one cause of bankruptcy was actually medical. So a lot of people are taking out loans to cover medical costs, but they're taking them out with these like 100% interest rate, like these wild interest rates that are actually pushing them further and further into poverty. And as you can probably guess, it is uh, people of color and marginalized people are disproportionately impacted by this. And I wanted to bring it up because this is avoidable. Like we could actually cap The interest rates, we've done it before. We've done it in cities across the country and states across the country. And in California, it's becoming a big problem that is ruining people's livelihoods.
3: So, Duray, as you said, like this is an example of uh, a place where state policy can really make a difference. And in California, there is uh, this gap uh, that allows for these extraordinary interest rates. Uh, And really, that should be addressed through state legislation. And it's not just California and so many other states. Uh, in cities, you know, this can actually be addressed. Uh, you can put these caps in place uh, and in places that do that, it actually works quite well. Uh, so this really is about the will of state lawmakers to see this as an issue and to, you know, use their their power to to address it.
4: I'm wondering if there's also a legal way to address this outside of the legislature. I want to be very clear. It's not just that loans like these disproportionately impact people of color. They are targeted to communities of color. Uh, you know, these ads are run on urban radio stations. These payday loan buildings exist in urban areas. If you are unfamiliar with these kinds of loans, it's because chances are you don't listen to the radio stations, watch the TV shows, or live in the neighborhoods where people are targeted for exactly these kinds of loans. Wells Fargo and other lenders were caught up in similar targeting um, and actually taken to court and found guilty of targeting Black and Latino neighborhoods for subprime mortgages during the house, following the housing crisis, rather. So I'm wondering if there is also the pathway of a lawsuit and another way to actually address the fact that this is not just affecting people of color and already marginalized communities, it is specifically being targeted toward them.
5: Yeah, and I think it's important for folks to know that this is like not a new phenomenon. This is a different iteration of something that uh, has been targeted, as you said, Britt, to, toward people of color for a long time. So I just finished this book, uh, The Origins of the Urban Crisis, um, which is was phenomenal. I very much recommend it. I've recommended The Color of Law on here and and that's a very good book to put in conversation with this one. So part of what this author talks about is the fact that uh, real estate land speculators would give these contracts to black home buyers uh, and they would allow them to move into these homes and they would pay this rent that was far higher than the rent that they that uh, other white families had been charged to live in the same place when it was newer and less dilapidated. Because uh, oftentimes what happens inevitably is when black folks move into certain neighborhoods, the real estate folks and the the people who manage the properties don't take care of them to the same extent um, that they would when they are white families who live there. And this is something that happened throughout the 20th century and something that continues to still happen now. Uh, but they would essentially, so essentially you p- would pay your mortgage um, payment every month. Uh, but the moment, and they would, and again, this is at a higher interest rate. This is a higher, uh, price, just a flat price than, than their white counterparts, but you would pay every month. And then the first month you weren't able to pay, uh, they would kick you out. You'll be evicted. And the, the thing is that you would not have then had any equity that you developed on the home. So most of the times when somebody leaves moves out of a home, um, they sell it and the the value of the home has appreciated and they are able to, like, you know, take that money and use it in, as a means to create intergenerational wealth and, and to buy a new house and to pay for, you know, all of the things that people need to pay for it for their families. But essentially it, what happened is these families had now thrown this money into the wind and and did not weren't able to get any of it back. Uh, and didn 't have anything to show for it once they once they left, and this could sometimes be after like years and decades of living in a home. Um, so I bring that up because I think that this is you know the the expo- economic exploitation around loans and interest rates and and uh, and housing is something that has happened to black folks in this country for as long as black folks have been in this country
1: that 's the news don 't go anywhere more politics of the people 's coming. Today, to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp. slash people.
0: horrors that we face every single day. Happy Women's History Month to all. Check out what's in stock at com slash store for this
2: month only.
1: And here's my conversation with Wendy
2: Kopp of Teach for
1: all. Wendy Kopp, thank you so much for joining us today on Politics of the People.
2: Oh, thanks for having me.
1: Now, most people know uh, the, the thing you're most known for, which is Teach for America, which you started when you were a student at Princeton. You were a senior? Yes. It was your thesis. It was. Okay. Yeah. I feel like... Alums have definitely heard this story over and over, <laughs> uh, but most people don 't know about you and what what are you doing now like what is what is life <laughs> twenty five years into Teacher America?
2: Oh, I feel so lucky to have found my way to this idea, my senior year in college that has is still keeping me just more engaged than ever um, but my full time energy is going into you know supporting social entrepreneurs around the world who are Working to do something similar to Teach for America in their countries. Um, we're building the Teach for All Network, which is a network of independent, locally led organizations in 46 countries and growing in 46, wow. Every region of the world um, that essentially share the share a unifying purpose, you know, the same purpose that Teach for America exists um, to accomplish, which is to develop collective leadership to ensure all children fulfill their potential. Um, and they're all doing that through essentially adapting a common approach, um, you know, working to galvanize the rising generation of leaders in their countries to channel their energy into the arena of working with the most vulnerable kids in their countries um, through initially committing two years to teach Um, These organizations invest a lot in those teachers during the two years in pursuit of really important impacts for kids and also really important long-term effects. Because we've seen that um, those two years are are truly foundational for just a lifetime of leadership and advocacy. And um, these folks, through their own personal leadership and through what they help support and catalyze in others and their students and other teachers in their schools and others in their communities, ultimately... Are are a significant force and contribution to the collective leadership we ultimately need to to actually address the inequities that exist all over the world.
1: What are some of the countries Teach Troll's in?
2: Um, well, Queens. we're we're all over the place. From you know, from we're in ten Latin American countries in Latin America. We started in Chile and Peru. We're in the Caribbean in Haiti. Um, we're in thirteen Asian countries in from India to China to. Um, Nepal, and, and many places in between. Um, we're in three African countries, just, just getting started in Nigeria, Uganda, and Ghana. Um, we're in the Middle East, in Lebanon, Qatar, and in 18 European countries as well.
1: Now, as you know, some of the criticism that Teacher America has gotten has been about the two-year commitment, this idea that that is not long enough to to be a great teacher, that, that Teacher America just was a stepping stone for people to get a great career, and and taking the Teach for America model and sort of expanding it to be a global model, you're keeping the two-year commitment. Can you explain, like, why, like how is that not doing a disservice to communities in the way that critics would say mm-hmm. that it is?
2: So I think it's important to start by, by really grounding this conversation in the problem we're working to address, you know. And all of the organizations across the Teach for All network are working to address the reality that the circumstances of kids' birth— predict their educational outcomes and, and life outcomes. Um, that issue doesn't start in classrooms. You know, it, it, and in fact, we have kind of a common theory of the problem all around the network, which is fascinating to get your head around. I mean, whether you're in Afghanistan or, you know, Peru, we can kind of at a certain high level come to realize that we have this problem because first of all, whole segments of kids in every part of the world face many extra challenges the challenge whether it be poverty the challenges of discrimination i mean so many things and those kids show up at schools that were never set up to meet their extra needs. Mm. And we have a prevailing ideology about the potential of kids and and that fuels a set of policies and practices that kind of perpetuates this big vicious cycle. Um, so, for the kids who are growing up experiencing that, I mean, they need as many people in their lives as possible who will go above and beyond traditional expectations to meet their extra needs and help ensure that they have the opportunities they deserve. Teachers are an incredible source of those those kind of folks, and we need as many incredibly committed people for as many years as possible to teach. At the same time, we need a lot of people who understand what you understand having taught successfully in some of the highest need and most challenging contexts in the world to actually leave the classroom to address the more systemic issues. Um, you know, we need them to go start new schools and design new schools to run school systems differently, to, you know, improve the quality of social services and health services, to, you know, develop economies in in the lowest income communities, um, and to shift the prevailing ideology, you know. So, ultimately, um, you know, this is a a systemic effort to cultivate the leadership capacity we need, not only at every level of the education system where we need a lot of leadership, but also at every level of policy and across sectors, so that we can actually have a chance to not just put band-aids on on the issue, but to actually get at the roots of the issues.
1: And what was the first teacher for All uh, country?
2: Actually... You know, there was something in the water about 11 years ago, and within one year, I had heard from people in 13 countries who wanted to do this and were looking for help. So, we supported seven launches in, wow. our, in our first year. <laughs> yeah, from India, Chile, you know, it's, it's hard to remember even which, which were the first seven, but we were very quickly in 13 countries.
1: Wow. Can you paint a picture of what it looks like? Like, what does it look like when you open up a Teach for All site? Like, how does it I, I would imagine that the country's context changes the way the program sort of runs and feels that it wasn't like the mm-hmm. experience here in the States. Like, can you can you pick one and help yeah. us understand it?
2: You know, in any of these contexts, what's happening is a local social entrepreneur, but just really an individual is, is coming to us saying, we really, I really want to do this. And they go through maybe a year or more process of really trying to deeply understand this approach and really still more deeply understanding their own country and how they would adapt the common principles that we all share across the network to their particular country. Um, so, that that's kind of, so as you say, it's, it's really deeply locally a, you know, adapted by local leaders. Um, so, I think about, you know, Nadine Paul DeRoli, who started on Seipu which is Teach for Haiti and Crail. Um, they launched maybe three or four years ago. Um, she had... You know, was born in Haiti, ended up getting an education here, going back to Haiti, was working for Partners in Health, um, and and just became more and more convinced that we, you know, we need to build Haiti's future from within Haiti. You know, the context there is so striking. You know, 1% of Haitians are getting college degrees, and wow. 80% of the 1% leave Haiti. And wow. so, there really is a very real... You know, there's not enough local leadership capacity. And what you see is just, of course, in the history of Haiti is, you know, decades and decades of failed outside intervention. Um, And what, you know, drew Najin to this was just the notion that we need to build Haiti from within. And we're going to do that by building strong community leadership who will in turn build the leadership of our students who will change Haiti. So, um, she spent three years, first of all, going deep in communities of Haiti. Like, she's focused on four... Rural communities, and she started by really engaging with a diverse set of community local stakeholders to understand um, the context for kids, and you know what's going on when kids do kind of beat the odds, and um, and really just getting an under you know gaining an understanding of the strengths in communities, of their culture, history, context, Um, and and that ultimately, I mean, actually one of the things she did through that process was. develop, co-create with the folks in communities a vision for student success, you know, by the time our kids are 25, here's what we want to have be true. Um, And that engagement also informed the design of of the program in Haiti. And, you know, she undertook a number of innovations, um, one of which is that she recruits both, you know, top recent college graduates in Haiti and also you know, strong teachers in the communities in which she's working who meet the same selection criteria. And then she invests in the development of that whole cohort um, and also invests in the leadership of the school principals in those communities, you know, with which they're partnering. Um, And so, you know, you can see like adaptations that make sense for the Haitian context. And honestly, that also, you know, could be real innovations that could have implications, you know, everywhere in the world, and and even back in the United States.
1: How big is the Haitian cohort?
2: Um, it's still quite small. They have maybe thirty people in each cohort, and they've placed two cohorts so far.
1: Got it. You've been in this. You've been in the fight for a while, uh, mm-hmm. and you're a white woman who started this this organization that has become a huge player in public education. What are the lessons? that you've learned or how have you started to think about like the relationship between race and education differently? Like how's that grown over the years?
2: Mm. Well, this is an interesting question in an international context because I think these, these issues play themselves out differently in different countries. Um, But I guess I've come to just see so deeply how, important it is that the people who've experienced the inequities we're working to address are guiding and leading the work. Um, and, you know, I think this whole approach is rooted in the idea that we need we need a diverse and inclusive group of people leading, you know, from inside and outside of education, working together to effect the changes necessary to ensure all kids fulfill their potential. And we've seen through our work, certainly the power of Taking the folks in the establishment, like the people who have the most privilege and having them gain proximity to the issues and become determined to to address them, but we've also seen that it's it's really not sufficient, and that the the path to truly the equity that we 're all seeking is for the folks who have experienced the inequities to be charting the vision and and leading the way um, because we don't want to perpetuate like the the dynamics in a privileged society, you know, we want the folks who, and, and at the same time, those are the people who, who have the greatest stake, first of all, in, in changing the status quo, um, and who have all the strength from having, you know, persevered through all of the injustices. So, um, we've just seen it at every level and there's such an intentional effort um, and certainly, I mean we we you know, obsess about the importance of making an intentional effort in every country in the world actually, um, to ensure first of all that the cohorts we're recruiting are diverse, that they include, um, you know, certainly the folks who are, you know, we need everyone. We need the most privileged folks in society, but we also need the folks in our communities who've attained an educate, a great education and have so much to bring back to their classrooms. Um, I think you can't be in this work for long without realizing that there's no way, I mean, first of all, it's so powerful, of course, for kids in classrooms to have teachers who share their backgrounds, mm-hmm. right? And, and so that's absolutely. I mean, all other things being equal, that's just a huge asset. But when you get into the the kind of longer term mission of Teach for America and of all these organizations across the Teach for All Network, you realize there's actually no way to succeed without ensuring that this is a diverse group. Like there's just no way to sustain and effect truly meaningful changes that are in the direction of the aspirations of the folks in in the communities without ensuring that so it okay. just needs to be a super intentional effort at every level
1: and what have you what have you learned about like if you had to write a book about i mean you've already written books but if you if you had to sort of write a thing about leadership like what would be like the two or three things that you've learned about leadership over the years and i ask because you've seen you've seen people like start out as classroom teachers and go on to be like, you know, superintendents and da, da, da. like you've seen people's paths, like from the, mm. literally the beginning of their career. Uh, and I have to believe that you've seen like the, the good sides of people's leadership and like the pretty bad sides of people's leadership. So I'd love to know, mm. like, what are the what are the lessons?
2: Um. Well, with the huge caveat that, you know, this is such a learning journey <laughs> and, you know, we'll, we'll probably never be there in terms of having learned everything there is to learn. But um, just a few things that, that are really striking, I think. Um, one is just the incredible power of teaching as a foundation for the kind of leadership we need. Um, and I think that this, you know, has almost come into more stark relief as I've watched this play itself out across the world, Mm. because I just can't get over how similarly it's playing itself out. You know, all over the world in such diverse contexts, different cultural contexts where, you know, there's different levels of pressure on kids to, say, get on a path to, you know, making money or, you know, being lawyers and doctors or whatever. I mean, no matter where we are, it's like 70% of these people who come in totally unsuspecting, saying, I'm just going to do this for two years, never leave education. Hmm. And another maybe 10-15%, depending on the country, are still in in and around the work, you know, working to improve the quality of life in low-income communities. So, there's just something so transformational. And one of the things that I get to do and that I love to do is to go around, you know, the world now and meet with the people who've who've completed their two years. Um, And I ask them all, no matter, I mean, I could be in Dallas, Texas or Dhaka, Bangladesh or the next place. And I just ask them all the same question, like, you know, what was the most striking thing you learned during your two years? And it's just shocking to see the consistency of answers. Mm. You know, everything they say falls into two buckets. One bucket is... I gained an incredible sense of possibility. Like I came to realize how much my kids have the potential to do came to realize how much I have the potential to do. I mean, that's just such a strain throughout. And the second is, um, you know, they come to see the magnitude and the complexity of the challenges. In Mm -hmm. fact, now we're seeing whole studies proving, you know, like basically showing that these folks come in like the rest of the public way oversimplifying the issues, right? Right. Assuming like more money will solve the problem, like technical solutions will fix it. And they come out realizing this is very complex. It's gonna take a lot of adaptive change. This is about mindsets, expectations for kids and a whole host of other things, right? Um, So that's, that's one of my biggest observations is that there's something about the opportunity teaching presents to build relationships with kids and their families, you know, you just you realize through that how much how much we're you know how much shared humanity we all have, and and how much kids can accomplish when when they're met with high expectations and provided with extra supports, and that's just so foundational to so much else. Um, you know, another piece I, I've come to really, and and I think maybe it's it's the international, you know, part of the journey that's that's really brought this to the fore for me, but um, I've come to think a lot as alongside so many others across the Teach For All, you know, community around the notion of collective leadership. Um, And by collective leadership, I mean, you know, not only just this notion that we need leaders around the whole ecosystem around kids, I mean, really inside and outside of education at every level, you know, if we don't tackle these issues in their full complexity, we're not actually going to make meaningful and sustainable progress, but also um, to mean both the diversity and inclusiveness of that group to the previous discussion, but also the degree to which we're actually pulling ourselves up from individual pursuits and, developing the relationships, like creating the space within our communities for the relationship building, Mm. the having of difficult discussions, the collective reflection about lessons learned, like growing the collective wisdom, and the building of shared vision. Like, what do we want to have be true for our kids? Um, And I just think a lot about that because as we look at and reflect on, you know, 25 years in this country of of working in, in some cases, you know, we've probably been in some communities for 28 years, you know, New York City being one of them and many others around the country. And there's actually been so much progress for kids in, in that time. I think we, in in all of our collective, you know, despair about how much more there needs to be done, I think we we kind of minimize how much progress we've actually made. I mean, in many places, kids have... Many more opportunities today. Um, But when I think about what could have sped up the pace of change, it to me, it's this piece around around space for a collective approach. Um, You know, you have so many good people working towards ends very hard. I mean, head down. But not all rowing in the same direction, and I think we could be making. You know, we can't speed up the pace of change like and solve all problems overnight. I think that's another lesson of this work. This is a long game, but we could we could move more purposefully and and you know increase the pace of change through a collective approach.
1: And what do you think the state of uh, teacher prep is? And I asked. I used to be the human capital officer in Baltimore, and I led staffing in Minneapolis and. And I was an alum and, and I and I worry about like what as somebody who had to hire teachers, like it was like the teacher prep space seemed to at some places be innovating. But at some places it felt like we were like way far behind, which is which in some ways I think is like why 80 percent of all our teachers are white, like which is why certification rules are sort of like random and haphazard ac- across cities and states. What's your what's your thoughts about teacher prep? Like where we go?
2: Um. Well, I think that we need to connect deeply the the process of recruiting and developing teachers to schools and school systems themselves. You know, um, I mean, people are the most, you know, people are everything, leadership is everything. And if you're running a school or a school system, you need to really own the recruitment, selection, development of your people. I mean, that's your single greatest lever. And I think that hasn't always been, like, I think about where things were when I got started with Teach for America. And I mean, honestly, the thought was that school, that wasn't the job of school systems. Hmm. I mean, you know, we had like human resources folks reporting to operations just because like, it's like we open buildings, we need to fill every teacher slot, like not reporting to the academic side. And you know, the thought was there were teacher shortages because the schools of ed weren't producing enough teachers, not because like there was something more we could do within school systems to actually recruit and develop folks effectively. So, I think we have seen in this country, we've seen a real shift in in that, but maybe not, not enough. I mean, if you start looking at the studies about what we know about teacher development, hmm. we know way less than than, than we should. I mean, we're having almost really? a disingenuous conversation, I think, about teacher prep. People often say, oh, we know what to do. We're just not doing it. No, we don't. No, we really? don't. That's not what the studies show. The studies <laughs> show that we actually don't know. And I think about, you know, I think about Teach for America, I mean, you know, and, and all of the Teach for All organizations, um, you know, and there was just a, a new study out about Teach for America, looking at all the studies done over time, a, Taking account of their rigor and whatnot, and do you know what this show, is called? So
1: people can check it out, or who did I it? I should where, where it is.
2: I should. It was a compendium. You can find it on the Teach for America website, okay. and but it was done by an independent group, and you know, it shows on average, you know, positive impact. I think on average it was like thirty six extra days of instruction in, in a Teach for America core members classroom. Um, but for all that has been poured into. Um, all the Teach for All organizations in terms of, you know, the rigor around recruitment and selection, the intensity of the pre-service training, the ongoing coaching and support that's provided, you know, you would think we would see even more significant impacts. And I think it's just, you know, it's just a note of humility to say, I think I've learned how hard it is to recruit and select and develop teachers well. When I think about the most effective, beginning teachers and the beginning teachers who are happier than others. So often, it's because of the support and culture mm. that they're working within at the school level. And so, I, I personally think we need to put a lot more intention attention towards how do we build really strong schools that have at, at the core a commitment to people development um, and that are structured in ways that leverage all the diverse talents of the teachers and, and foster working in teams and, and whatnot.
1: Has being a parent changed the way that you thought about this work or about classrooms or about teachers or education? I ask all the parents about how it's, how parenting has impacted their work. So I thought I'd ask you.
2: It's probably helped me Understand just the importance of a strengths-based approach.
1: What is a strength-based approach for people that don't know what that means?
2: Meaning, like, you know, and, and I think this is one of the core, you know, just sort of foundations of of this work is, you know, realizing like there's so many strengths in every school, in every community. And you know, we want to understand what those strengths are and leverage them, you know, rather than going in and saying, I'm here because it's broken, you know, like that's just not a foundation for, for progress. And, you know, I think about, I mean, you know, we have four wonderful kids. They're incredible. How old are they? They're a motley crew as well. I mean, um, they are, I have a fourth grader and I have a, a freshman in college, um, three boys and a little girl, um, and yeah, like they're you know if, of course if you're their doting parent you see the incredible strengths that they all have but it's, <laughs> it's so easy to lose that when you've got you know kids sitting in rows in, in classrooms. I mean, thankfully we've had like incredible public schools and teachers and and you you know just I'm so happy with with what we've you know with with the opportunities that have been afforded to our kids, but you know it's really it's led me to realize just how important it is to get to know kids individually you know and to find you know to to root, root everything in in what their strengths are and what what their passions are
1: were there any failures along the way that you learned from
2: oh my goodness i mean <laughs> there were so many um failures and and lessons learned i mean i assume you mean not in the parenting journey but in the no, overall no, in the, yeah, in the education <laughs> journey. it's like something that like you journey. you
1: tried didn't work and and like there was a lesson there i ask because people often like they only see the success mm-hmm. you know like they see the they see the outcome of the lesson mm-hmm. they they never saw the light le- you know i think about with us in the protests is that like you didn't see me sleep on the side of the road you didn't see me sleep in people's driveway yeah. like you didn't see any of the things we planned that like didn't really work. You yeah. just saw all the highlights, you know. Yeah. Um. And we learned so much from from trying things, and it just like didn't really stick. Yeah. Uh, so I'd love to know like it's, what
2: it's. I mean, there have been. I mean, I I could list a thousand lessons learned. Um. It's so interesting because I think I just don't orient around the failure question. I okay. mean, there have probably been a million, but it's just been such an iterative process of. Finding the things that do work, and then realizing maybe that's what we should be doing, you okay. know. And I think that that, you know, I'm so grateful for these incredible people around the world who, you know, have initiated the growth of of this approach around the world because I, I see even more so the opportunity for learning, you know, because you've got all these folks in very diverse contexts, different cultures that inspire different ways of thinking, and they really are innovating and adapting in ways that are leading us all to realize, you know, what we could have, (laughs) you know, (laughs) like what we could have done, what the choices we could have made. So, um, So, yeah, I think probably the most profound for me lesson of the work has been around just the importance of orienting our work within communities and working in partnership with local community stakeholders um, to develop the kind of sustained partnership necessary to really move the needle. You know, um, that's probably the biggest thought on my mind um, is how do we, how do we do that? Because in the end, there really there's so much strength in our communities, and um, given everything we talked about before, like it's so crucial that the folks who've experienced the inequities are actually charting the course and saying, "Here's what we care about," um, and it's not to say that that folks outside communities can't come in and really come to understand the context in communities and build the relationships and contribute really meaningfully to that effort. In fact, they think they can be really crucial forces, you know, in in, in helping people in communities become almost like globally informed, like informed about what is actually working, what's possible in other contexts. Um, but that's probably the biggest thing on on my mind. Like, how do we more live into that? When we think about the teach for all network one of our core values and just guiding principles is around being locally rooted and globally informed just hmm. rooted always in the idea that you know local leadership is the foundation of everything and and nothing will nothing will change without strong local leaders owning owning it and and driving the change. And at the same time, we do know that those local leaders can move a lot more quickly when they're exposed to what's possible and, and what's working in other contexts. So how do we how do we really, you know, engage in developing the local leadership capacity necessary to really, you know, take these issues on in their full complexity?
1: As we come to an end, there are two questions I ask everybody. The first is um in this moment, it feel, people feel hopeless. They feel like they've like protested, called, emailed, gone to the meeting, testified, and like it hasn't gotten better. What do you say to those people?
2: That this is a long game. You know, I, I the biggest lesson I've learned over time is that time and perseverance do pay off, you know? And, and it can really seem at times like, Like, that's not true. Like, the barriers and the systemic injustices are just too immense. But, um, you know, we've faced these inequities and these injustices for decades and decades, and they're, they're very entrenched. And what we've seen is that with time, you know, I think we get so used to quick fixes. Like, we can change the way we communicate overnight and solve whole diseases with vaccines and this is just something different, like, addressing this very complex set of injustices. And yet, we really have seen, like, whole communities make meaningful progress. And I think it takes, it takes many initiatives. It takes a lot of people working together. It takes collective leadership. Um, And the key to all of our aspirations rests in staying the course, you know? Like, we, it's so hard but and it takes each of us just making the decision to stay the course, even when it seems like we're just pushing the boulder up a hill.
1: I love it. And the last question is: uh, What's a piece of advice that you've gotten over your career that stuck with you?
2: You know, the piece of advice I probably reference for myself most actually is is in a whole other realm. I mean, a okay. realm in terms of my my life with my kids. You know, and. Like, I feel so lucky to have, as I said earlier, like found myself, found my way to this work many years ago, 28 years ago. And it would, I never, you know, I I love, I love this work. And I think it's it's so meaningful. It's so important, the chance to work alongside such brilliant and committed colleagues all over the world. I mean, I don't want to give that up. I, I work very hard. I travel a lot, you know, and so when I had little kids, I was really grappling, as many parents with intense jobs do, with, you know, the trade-offs and the dilemmas and all. And I still remember actually listening. I mean, I heard the same piece of advice from like three people within two months. John Daisy was one of them, actually, the former superintendent in Los Angeles at the time, Um, and he was reflecting on his life. And he shared this thought that, you know, we often think as working parents about, all the trade-offs and the disadvantages of having these intense jobs on the development of our own kids. And he really encouraged us to flip it around and think, what are the assets that I have because of this work? Um, And I've just really, I've thought so much about that advice and I feel so privileged for my kids' sake that I do what I do because I'm able to, you know, expose them to parts of the world and to issues that so many kids don't have access to. Um, You know, I took my oldest son, who's now a freshman in college, you know, on this two-week trip at one point when he was in seventh grade to China. And I really don't believe in like one or two week experiences to change the course of, or at least I didn't, of someone's (laughs) life. But that one visit, And of course, we've taken many other visits since then and and trips, and he's seen everything from remote rural areas in in America to to other regions of the world. But that that trip changed the nature of our relationship, his understanding about what one's life could be about. He, you know, he's still studying Chinese intensively, you know, he's so turned on to, like, realizing just the shared humanity and how many incredible people there are all over the world and, and how much we're all part of one global community. So I I just think that's probably the thing I most I most reference.
1: I love it. Well, Wendy, appreciate you uh, being on the pod today. We consider you a friend of the pod and can't wait to uh, stay tuned. Before you go, though, can you tell people where they can follow you? How they can learn more about Teach for All? Can people volunteer? Like, what what are the opportunities for people to get involved?
2: Yes. Um, Well, first of all, I'm at at Wendy Cop on... On Twitter and on Facebook as well, um, uh, check out our website, www.teachforall.org. Um, and, you know, you'll see ways to to get involved there. Um, if, if you're interested in any of the countries we're in or not in, let us know and we can link you up to local folks in those countries um, so that you can help. And finally, you know, one of the things, probably one of the biggest challenges of this work has been you know, finding our way to a community of people who believe it's important that we see rising educational levels and decreasing disparities all around the world that our own kids are terribly important and and kids all around the world are important. Our collective welfare depends on you know our kids all around the world fulfilling their potential and we're growing a community of friends of Teach for all um, who support the global work and you know, just gain access to information and insight that we're learning in communities around the world. Cool.
1: Well, thank you. And we'll see you soon. Thank you. Hey, you're listening to Pod Save the People.
2: Don't go anywhere. There's more to come.
0: Hi, I'm Erin Ryan, a writer and host of the podcast Hysteria. Don't even get us started on our exclusive YouTube series, This Fucking Guy, where we try to figure out how the worst people in America got to be so awful. So if you're looking for a pod that's by the ladies and for everyone, make sure to subscribe to Hysteria wherever you get your podcasts.
2: Strict Scrutiny is your guide to the Supreme Court. New episodes drop every Monday, plus bonuses whenever the Supreme Court takes away another one of our rights. Make sure to subscribe to Strict Scrutiny wherever you get your podcasts.
1: And now my conversation with Kat Calvin of Spread the Vote. Well, Kat, thanks so much for joining us today on Pod Save the People.
0: Thank you so much for having me. I love your podcast.
1: Now, you are with Spread the Vote. You're an attorney and you started Spread the Vote. Can you tell us uh, what Spread the Vote is and like what was your pathway to doing this?
0: Um, Yeah, absolutely. So in a nutshell, Spread the Vote gets IDs for voters in voter ID states. Um, We operate on this sort of very basic grassroots principle that if people need an ID, we'll just get them one. Um, I started it after the election I'm a lawyer, but I've spent most of my life uh, running nonprofits and social enterprises, and sort of trying to find a way to make a measurable impact in the community and the country. Um, and then I decided to retire and live by the beach because I was burnt out. <laughs> and the election happened, and <laughs> I came out of retirement. I'm at the ripe age of 34, and I'm I. I've always been really passionate about voting rights. I learned all about the Voting Rights Act in law school, but it was very much, you know, let's study this wonderful historic document that exists and then move on with your life because it exists. Um, And then Shelby County v. Holder happened and it no longer existed. And um, I kept sort of looking for, you know, leadership, Democratic leadership to I'm um, as sort of Republican leadership acted very very quickly and started passing voter ID laws and gerrymandering and all of these things and there wasn't really anything happening to fight it um, and I thought voter ID laws were very clearly I'm um, something that was both very obviously impacting elections I'm um, and impacting people's lives but also something that you know there's a simple answer to just get people IDs um, um, and then after the election, still nobody was talking about it. And so I just said, you know what, F it, I'll just do it myself. And um, I started to spread the vote.
1: And when you say get people IDs, what does that mean?
0: Uh, so what we do is um, we operate in, uh, we're, I'm actually just got to Florida yesterday to launch here. Um, and we're in four states and I'm watching around the country and we train Hyperlocal chapters, a lot of indivisible chapters, we have a great partnership with them on how to get people IDs. So, you know, what are all the laws, what are all the documents that are required, et cetera, everything you need to know to get someone. Um, and what we get people, government-issued photo IDs, usually the non-driver's license state ID, um, although it varies. Um, and then we partner with local service organizations, uh, homeless shelters, food banks, legal clinics, churches. If you don't have an ID you can't work, legally at least. Um, and so people who don't have photo ID very frequently encounter um, and interact regularly with one of these type of service organizations. So we partner with them and through them we connect with people who need IDs. And then you know, we work through the process of getting them whatever they need on the list. So, 57% of the people we work with need birth certificates, um, which there's sort of a back and forth you need an ID to get a birth certificate, but you need a birth certificate to get an ID. (laughs) And so it's (laughs) this huge cycle. Um, And they're not easy to get. You know, my mother, I'm an army brat, we moved a lot. And my mother realized once she had no idea where her birth certificate was. And it took her six months and $80 to get it in a different state. It was this huge headache. Um, People lose them for all sorts of reasons. And so we have to go through this sort of different, expensive and more challenging process to get people birth certificates. Um, Sometimes you need social security cards. Uh, There are things, like, if you're homeless, proof of residency is a challenge, and so helping them figure that out. Um, you know, just really going through all of the things we always tell our volunteers that they're sort of half case managers and half Sherlock Holmes, and it's really about doing whatever it takes to getting the documents required to get someone an ID. Um, and so we do all of that, we pay for everything, we drive them, you know, to. Vital records, their Social Security office, or the DMV, or wherever, walk through, walk them through the process, make sure they get an ID in their hand, um, and then we register them to vote, and we, um, we do whatever it takes so because we're working with a, a large population of people who are less likely to vote, you know, which is 50% of the country, if you look at the last election, um, but people of color, people of low income, young people, and, and um, well, elderly people are the exception in that, I, for a lot of reasons, don't traditionally vote, mostly because the government has a, made it very difficult and gone out of their way to tell those people that their vote doesn't matter. Um, And so we work on both voter education, um, as well as making sure that they have a ride to the polls so that when an election comes around, you know, we've gotten them this ID that can help them three hundred sixty five days a year get a job, get housing, get medical care. There are, there are actually a lot of homeless shelters that don't let you sleep there if you don't have ID. There are a lot of food banks mm. that don't give you food if you don't have ID. That one drives me insane. Um, and so making sure that they have an ID that can help them with their basic needs every day of the year. But then that also when it comes time for an election that we've both prepared them by making sure they're registered, by making sure they understand the issues, that they know what a ballot looks like and how to vote. And then that we get them to the polls.
1: Are there places where this work is more important than others? Are there like hot spot states or cities, or is this equal across the country?
0: Um. So yes and no. Uh, when you look at just purely the ID issue for life, I'm um, there are people in all fifty states. Every single city, every urban area, every rural area who do not have IDs and who need them. Um, so it's it's an issue everywhere. When you look specifically at voting, I uh, it's very different. So 34 states, um, and this this literally changes like every week. Um, <laughs> but as of count today, 34 states have some form of voter ID law, uh, and then what that form looks like varies. So there are several states where you need to bring in. A utility bill or, you know, a W-2, something that shows your name and address, which people may think is fine. But here's the thing. First of all, let, like I think hopefully everyone listening to this podcast knows voter fraud is not a thing. It's like 0.0000002%. Like We've now learned that you actually are more likely to be abducted by a UFO than for voter fraud to exist. It's not a thing. Um, and the very small amount of voter fraud that does exist is actually through absentee ballots, which voter ID laws do nothing at all to address. Um, so when you're asking someone to bring a W-2, or utility bill, most people don't know that. And so a lot of people show up, don't have what they need, are sent back, you know, to pick something up. And voting is hard enough in this country. You have to leave work. You have to drive all over. You have to stand in line. People don't show up. Um, Or they're forced to vote provisional, which, you know, unless you show up at the county clerk's office within 24 or 48 hours and show proof of something, they're going to toss out And how many people are going to do that. So even those very minimal requirements actually do suppress a lot of votes. But then there are states that have much more strict requirements um, and actually require certain types of government-issued photo ID. Um, They are... Usually between seven and nine types of ID. A driver's license is um, always on there. A U.S. passport, a military ID. In some states, you can vote with a student ID. In some states, you cannot vote with a student ID. Uh, in some states, like Texas, you can vote with a gun or hunting license, but not a student ID. Uh, so it really just varies. I'm around the country in those states what you can use to vote with. And those are specifically the people who, if they're part of that 21 million people who don't have ID and they live in a strict photo ID state, they can't vote. Um, And then some States come up with, I, Provisions to work around it, like my very favorite in Alabama, they have the uh, I call it the I know Joe rule, which is that if you show up at the at the polls and you don't have an ID, if two of the workers are willing to sign an affidavit saying, yeah, they know who you are, then you're allowed to vote. Shut up, that's a rule. (laughs) That is actually it's actually a rule. Yeah, and it's it is you know it's just there are all of these rules that make it very clear. Like they're not even trying to pretend that this isn't the new Jim Crow. It is. I'm. You know, and then some states will say, well, you know, you can vote with a provisional ballot and then sign it and then we'll compare that signature to your voter registration. Well, if you're elderly and it's been a long time since you've registered, then your ballot, your signature is going to look different. Or, you know, how do we know that they're not more likely to recognize Joe Smith's signature, but not Lakeisha Johnson's, right? Like, there's, it's completely subjective and there's no way with these workarounds that they create um, that they aren't specifically created for bias because it's so clear and it has been proven over and over that that's actually what it is.
1: So, what can people do? How can people get involved?
0: Well, there are several ways. I'm go to spreadthevote.org. Um, if you are in Virginia, Georgia, Tennessee, Florida. Um, and Texas starting in March. Those are the five states that we're in so far. You can go to spreadthevote.org volunteer or just click the little volunteer link at the top right corner and sign up and we'll get back to you um, and connect you with a chapter. If you're interested in launching a chapter in your community, if there isn't one um, already, we'll come out and train you. Um, if you are in Wisconsin, Kansas, And I think starting next month, Arizona, um, then this amazing woman and one of my close friends, um, Molly McGrath, uh, works with ACLU People Power, and they are also helping teach people how to do ID work. Um, And she is working her way through those three states. And so um, I always send people to at Voter Molly on Twitter, or we try to retweet at at Spread the Vote US as many of their activities and trainings as possible, um, or just email the ACLU and you can get involved there. Um, if you're not in any of those states, then there's a couple things you can do. No matter what state you live in, there are issues with voting. I live in Los Angeles. Los Angeles is its so blue. It's ridiculous. But we have huge problems with voter turnout. Every state in the union has problems with voter turnout. We have very low voter registration. We have a lot of issues with getting people to the polls. And that's the case everywhere. So if you go to rockthevote.org, they actually have this incredible new tool that for all 50 states, you can look up your state and look at what are the voting issues in your state. Maybe you don't have automatic voter registration. Maybe people are working on mail-in voting. Maybe it is a very strict voter ID state. Um, And so you can look at what the issues are in your state. They have resources to get involved, but also get involved with Indivisible. Indivisible is one of our favorite partners. Um, They're so dedicated to helping people Make change in their own communities and their own districts, which is, is, you know, really a driving mission for us as well. And regardless of where you are in the country, they have at least two individual chapters in every district in the country, which is kind of mind blowing. Um, and they, those chapters almost always have a voting rights committee, or you can start one. You can get started working on voting rights wherever you live. Um, and then stay tuned to Spread the Vote, sign up to our newsletter. And when we do launch in your state, then you'll be totally ready to get IDs with Spread the
1: Vote. Dope, and I'm I'm now on the board of Rock the Vote, and we love uh, the work that you do, and excited <laughs> to continue this partnership. So, Yay. Great to meet you. How how can people follow you? Is that can they should they follow you, or should they just follow uh, Spread the Vote US?
0: You should follow both of us. I'm at Spread the Vote US, and I'm at Cat Calvin, um, LA.
1: Thanks so much for being with us today. Consider you a friend of the pod, and can't wait to have you back.
0: Awesome. Well, thank you so much. It was great talking to you.
1: Well, that's it. Thanks so much for tuning in to Pod Save the People this week. Tell your friends to check it out. Make sure to rate it wherever you get your podcast, whether it's Apple Podcasts or somewhere else. And we'll see you next week.